Birds, Patient and Public Engagement Podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this new podcast series about axial spondyloarthritis. I'm Mel Brook, the Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director for BIRD. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr Raj Sengupta, who is a consultant rheumatologist at the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases in Bath. We're going to be discussing the symptoms and the diagnosis tools and treatments that can be used for this condition. Hello Raj, thanks ever so much for joining us today. Hi Mel, it's good to talk to you. So today we're going to talk about axial spondyloarthritis, which is a, a term that's now being used to cover what we used to call our ankylosing spondylitis day or information event. Yeah, so Mel, the terminology has changed over the last few years and uh, we used to know this condition as ankylosing spondylitis and the terminology needed to change because uh, in years gone by, um, we were seeing uh, ankylosis, a complete fusion of the spine, which thankfully we see less of these days. Axial spondyloarthritis, which is the preferred terminology now, refers to inflammation uh, in the spine. Uh, and axial spondyloarthritis, as you pointed out, is an umbrella term, um, which traditionally we've taken to include ankylosing spondylitis and uh, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. The second terminology, probably focusing more on patients who don't have x-ray changes, but have other changes uh, such as their HLA-B27 being positive and MRIs being positive. So axial spondyloarthritis encompassing ankylosing spondylitis and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. As we move forward though, Mel, I think mm-hmm. we're uh, going to settle into terminology which will be axial spondyloarthritis being the umbrella term, mm-hmm. radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, which we formerly knew as ankylosing spondylitis, and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis uh, being the MRI and B27 side of things. Hope that makes sense. It, it does. I think I have to admit, I just prefer saying AXPAR at the moment because it's yeah. so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so thanks for clarifying that. Let's start with AXPAR and how it affects the body. Yeah, so uh, as time goes by, we're learning more and more about the exact pathology of the disease. For me, the best and simplest way of understanding it, it, this condition is that this is inflammation that is predominantly where the tendons and ligaments are inserting into bone. Where that inflammation then persists, the healing of that can cause fat deposition or erosions, and then the healing process of that can lead to new bone formation. Mm. So in the spine, typically, we would call that new bone syndesmophytes. These other sites included could happen at the Achilles, and so we might see what we call calcaneal spurs. So those are the bits of new bone that form as a result of inflammation that's occurred at the site of tendon insertion, otherwise known as enthesitis. 
that's the basic pathology of the condition mm -hmm. that is occurring at different sites of the body and can lead to new bone forming. And this this is what kind of locks the spine up or the neck up, is it? This this new bone growth. Yeah, so when these syndesmophytes form uh, in the spine, you might get new bone forming from the bottom of one of the vertebra, and mm -hmm. then from the top of the adjacent vertebra, they then meet up in the middle and, and form what we call a bridging syndesmophyte. If that happens at a number of different levels, that's when you get fusion of the spine and the restriction occurs as a result of this fusion. And this is why movement's so important, isn't it? We've done a, a podcast about physiotherapy for people with Axpar, but keeping that range of movement is something that's going to help. Yeah, the stretching exercises definitely help loosen the muscles and tendons around these new bits of bone. So exercise, and I'm sure we'll come on to this later, mm. uh, uh, becomes an integral part of managing this condition. Right, okay. So who would this kind of condition typically affect? Is there a large percentage of the population? So the condition is thought to affect between 0.1 and 2% of the population. And in the UK, we believe there are about 200,000 people affected with axial spondyloarthritis. The change from uh, ankylosing spondylitis to us diagnosing this condition earlier has meant that we have moved away from having that traditional 70% of men affected to now in non-radiographic disease, we're seeing much more of an equal male-female prevalence. Around 50% uh, of, uh, of, of the people diagnosed are female. So it's really important um, mm -hmm. that we educate our primary care colleagues in recognizing this because historically people would assume that the condition isn't affecting women. And so women not only have misdiagnoses, but a significant delay in diagnosis as well. Mm. Now, the condition affects people predominantly in their 20s and 30s at presentation. So if primary care colleagues are seeing people under the age of 45 with back pain that's persisted over three months, these are exactly the sort of patients who uh, axial spondyloarthritis should be considered in. Do you think they think that way? Because back pain can be caused by so many things. And especially, you know, that phase in your life, you're really busy, you might be you might have young children, you're picking them up and down and doing exercises. It's easy, isn't it, for a GP to miss that back pain could be something more serious? Yeah, it is difficult. You know, we, we know that probably around 2.6 million people uh, visit their GPs in the UK presenting with back pain. Uh, so GPs a lot of back pain. And as you rightly point out, many people with back pain along with GPs will assume that the back pain is due to either their working careers or sports that they've played or growing pains uh, because those are the common reasons for people to get back pain. Mm. I think the clues are if the, if the back pain persists, if it's there for months and months, hopefully that's the point that our primary care colleagues uh, and people with back pain will think about and say, well, this is not usual. Could this be an inflammatory reason for why the back pain is actually occurring? Yeah, it is difficult isn't it, to pick up on the clues, like you said. So persistent, anything that's persistent. Hmm. Uh, thing is, people will put up with a lot for a long time as well, won't they? So it's very difficult. 
Yeah, and Mel, we talk about educating physio colleagues and GPs, but I think that there's also a piece of work that needs to be done educating people with back pain. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, if we can get that bit right, then empowering people with back pain to question other reasons for their back pain could be really, really helpful for the future. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, how do people know to go back and say to their GP, this is persistent. I've had this for two years. Can we have some further investigation? It is about the message, isn't it, as well, of getting across to people that they can ask these questions. Yeah, I really agree. Mm. Do we know much about why people get the condition? Do we know what triggers it or is it in their genetic history? Yeah, so this has uh, been researched by many folk over the years and really the answers are not all there at the moment. Uh, obviously, we know genetics plays a big part from uh, HLA-B27 being discovered in the early 70s. And we know that if a parent is HLA-B27 positive, there's a 50% chance of that person, of the child then getting the gene. And if the child is HLA-B27 positive, they've got about a one in five chance of actually developing ankylosing spondylitis. So uh, we, we understand that part of it. Now, what are the triggers in someone who's genetically susceptible to getting the disease is still really unknown. Some people have speculated that could be trauma, it could be stress, it could be certain types of infections. Mm. There are a number of things that that, uh, have been speculated as being potentials, but I think at this stage it's uh, still to be discovered. There's probably no one obvious answer, is there? I mean, I I talk to patients and quite often they'll have their own um, story about what they think triggered their condition. Mm. So just to clarify the HLAB27, that's a blood marker, genetic blood marker? Yeah, so I think this is also raises an important point in axial spondylarthritis that we have very few markers to help us diagnose the condition. So HLA-B27 is a blood test. As I said, it was discovered in the early 70s. What we also know about the marker is that around 80% of the UK population are positive for the gene uh, and they may well never develop the disease. Mm. So as I've said to people in the past, HLA-B27 isn't a yes-no test, i.e. if you're positive for the gene, you don't necessarily have the disease. The other, the other marker we have is the CRP, which is the C-reactive protein. Mm-hmm. Again, a blood test which can signify infection or inflammation in the body. So the first thing to say about it is it's not specific for axial spondyloarthritis. It can be raised in people with inflammatory bowel disease or uh, if someone's got a pneumonia, mm-hmm. anything like that can cause the CRP to be raised. The second issue we have with CRP and axial spondyloarthritis is that between 50 and 60% of patients may have a normal CRP. Mm. So so excluding a diagnosis based on uh, a CRP would be a very big mistake. I guess if you've got the HLA-B27 result as positive and then you've got a 
consistently raised CRP, that might be a clue. Absolutely. These are clues. In axial spondyloarthritis, what I'm learning about the diagnosis is all the different features, and we can come on to the other mm. features, such as extraarticular manifestations, but the entire group of different features adds to your confidence when you're making a diagnosis. Yes. That's the key. That makes sense. So we've talked about what ATSPAR is and we've talked about the different ways of potentially diagnosing it or giving it as a diagnosis. What are the typical symptoms that people would experience from having this condition? Yeah, so that, that's a really good point, Mel. And the key story here or feature here is around the concept of inflammatory back pain. So what is inflammatory back pain? Now, typically, inflammatory back pain is back pain that someone experiences stiffness in the morning, and typically that stiffness will last over half an hour. Mm. People with axial spondyloarthritis or inflammatory back pain say that if they keep active and keep moving, that back pain and stiffness improves. Mm-hmm. Inflammatory back pain can cause an individual to wake up in the night. And the important thing here is not that they can't get to sleep because of pain. They often get to sleep all right, but then they wake in the second half of the night with some people having to move to get rid of that pain and stiffness. Mm. Now, the, the next thing which can be important is this concept of buttock pain and particularly alternating buttock pain. This is often confused with sciatica and it's not sciatica. It's the sacroiliac joint causing pain in the same area. But what patients with axial spondyloarthritis typically experience is buttock pain that goes from side to side. Mm. So that morning stiffness, sleep disturbance, improvement with activity, worsening with rest, and buttock pain all make up features that make us as clinicians think about inflammatory back pain. Mm. So it's important for people to understand it's a combination, isn't it, of, of symptoms as well, or could be a combination of symptoms. Absolutely. So do people go through phases where they feel better, just sort of randomly, without necessarily having medications, but just they have time where it's perhaps they're more relaxed or they've been on holiday and feel quite good and the pain's dulled and they kind of forget about it for a while, followed by a period where they have more intense pain, so flare-ups. Yeah, this condition is very typified by flare-ups. And flare-ups are an interesting concept because what a flare-up is to one person with axial spondyloarthritis can be very different to someone else. And these can include pain and stiffness and sleep disturbance as just some features of what occurs in a flare. Many patients will say that, that a flare-up comes on for no reason. It might last for two weeks. It'll then disappear. And then they might not experience anything for three months after that. So flare-ups come and go, but can be highly variable in frequency and intensity. What I've also found really interesting from talking to lots of patients with axial spondyloarthritis is how they manage their flare-ups. I have some patients who will, as soon as they get a flare-up, start a course of anti-inflammatories and take it until the flare-up disappears. 
I've other patients who like to get onto their stretches as soon as the flare-up starts and find that doing those stretches on a regular basis during the flare-up can help. And then there are other patients who, when they have flare-ups that are either occurring very frequently or have a flare-up that just won't disappear, then move on to drugs like the biological uh, drugs, mm. that then gets rid of their uh, flare-ups and stops new flare-ups coming on. Flare-ups are, mm-hmm. are a real typical way for patients with axial spondyloarthritis uh, experiencing symptoms. Yeah, patients talk a lot about flare-ups, but you're right. It depends where everyone's baseline for measuring what is a flare to them, and you know, is it an increase, an intense increase in pain, or is it something else? So, it's a difficult one to quantify, isn't it, in terms of mm. a, a actual term? So, Raj, when someone has AS, we talked about the symptoms, and it sounds like they can develop quite gradually for a lot of people. But are there instances where these symptoms develop really quickly? Yeah, I I would agree that I think the majority of patients um, develop symptoms gradually, and it gradually comes on, uh, and and then the. Uh, pain and stiffness become more and more evident. I would say um, that in my experience, the first 10 years are probably the key timelines for uh, people to get progressive disease. And some people talk about their first 10 years as when the AS was very active and they were getting lots of night sweats and the flares were really quite severe. Subsequent to the 10 years, these patients will say it's not that the condition burns out, and I really don't believe it does, um, but that it changes in how it presents. And part of it is them learning how to manage it and use drugs and exercises appropriately. But the condition doesn't tend to be so severe and progressive after those first 10 years. Now, there are a subset of people who appear to have very, very aggressive disease at the outset, and they progress very rapidly. And some of these patients seem to progress very rapidly in their uh, cervical spine or their necks as well. Mm. Uh, Thankfully, those patients are small in numbers. But what I think is important is that if any if any patients are identified like this in primary care or secondary care that we try and get them onto good treatments uh, as soon as possible yeah i guess there's no one typical patient is there there's trends but um we sent out an email to our patient network to ask them if they wanted to ask any questions to for us to include in the podcast we had one question about Are there any recent studies about how levels of inflammation can change with advancing years? Yeah, so as I said earlier about the CRP, it's not a great test in AS. Mm. But but actually when it's raised, we know that it acts as a prognostic marker. Uh, Mm. What I mean by that is people raise CRPs, uh, perhaps a little bit more likely to progress with their condition compared to those with normal CRPs. Uh, Interestingly, we also know that if someone's got a raised CRP, they're much more likely to respond to the biological uh, drugs than than those who have a normal CRP. Mm, But as the disease progresses, the CRP can be raised still, but it's less likely 
likely to be persistently raised. There haven't been any studies particularly looking at the correlation between CRP and flares, but I suspect that the CRP does rise when people are having flares of the axial spondyloarthritis. So it's not to do with getting older. Your, your inflammation levels don't rise just naturally as you get older in this disease. Not in this disease no. per se, no. Okay. Hopefully we've answered that question. So when you see someone in clinic, Raj, we talked about blood marker tests and all those preemptive detective work in terms of looking at a consistently raised CRP and the HLAB27 marker. How do you evaluate and measure the symptoms of a patient in the clinic? Yes. Yeah, so we start with listening and taking the history or, or the symptoms the person's describing. So just going back to things like the morning stiffness, that can be a good guide to how active the disease is. Mm -hmm. um, second thing is fatigue levels. So uh, fatigue can be a good marker again of how active the disease is. Mm. The next bit to look at in terms of activity of disease, and we'll probably come on to this separately, but the incidence of the extra-articular manifestations, so anterior uveitis, psoriasis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and any of those being active are important for us to consider when we're looking at the totality of the disease and how active that may be. Mm -hmm. Next is looking at the CRP. Once I said it's normal in a lot of people, if it's raised, that's important for us to note. And then we would look at the patient-reported outcome measures or the questionnaires, which are very important in our condition to assess disease activity. Mm -hmm. um, so the main one that we would use would be the BASDI, the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Index. Mm -hmm. And there is a growing trend to also use the ASDAS, which is a, another questionnaire marker of disease activity, but the ASTAS includes the CRP, which is one objective marker as well. So those are two main questionnaires we use to assess disease activity. But here in Bath, we're also keen to look at other aspects of the disease. So for functional assessment, we use the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Functional Index, otherwise known as the BAS-V. Uh, we have a measure to look at spinal pain between 0 and 10 and how severe the spinal pain is. We also have measures to look at work productivity, fatigue levels, and we always collect a pain chart that enables the patient to shade areas of pain, and we look and see how that also evolves over time. So assessing the disease state comes from talking to our patients, examining our patients, looking at the blood test results, looking at the disease activity scores in the clinical setting. Two other important things for us now. The mm. first is we once a year try and do the BASME score, which is the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Metrology Index. So patients would have been to their physiotherapists. And this score is made up of five measures, rotating your neck left and right, bending from side to side, bending forward, opening your hips, and then measuring the distance between your ear and the wall gives us a, a what we call a composite measure between 0 to 10 
of how severely the mobility or posture is restricted from axial spondyloarthritis. And it's a very good way of us keeping track of that over time. So that's a range of movement measure. Yeah, yeah. a range of movement measure, uh, predominantly affecting the spine. Okay. So you mentioned ASDAS. Can you just tell us what that stands for? It's the Axial Spondyloarthritis Disease Activity Score. Okay. So commonly across the country, which of these tools would be used in clinic? Across the UK, I suspect most centres will do the BASDI and the back pain score. Okay. Predominantly because NICE require those measures to be done for people on biologics. Right. Okay. It's good to have that clarification because some of the tools are quite bath specific, aren't they, and to do with the residential course and all the research work that's gone on at the RNHRD. Mm. Yeah, great. Are there other main health risks to people with AXPAR? Is it associated with other conditions? We talked about uveitis and potentially psoriasis. Are there other things like IBS? No, no uh, I think the main associated conditions are around um, uh, uveitis, psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disease that, that are definitely linked genetically. I think the other things to think about would be osteoporosis. So patients with axial spondyloarthritis are more prone to getting osteoporosis and this is predominantly seen as vertebral fractures. Okay. So we would always consider the presence of osteoporosis in axial spondyloarthritis and if we're concerned we would do a bone density scan and then advise on treatment. The other things that can be seen would be cardiovascular disease. So there is a slightly higher incidence of high blood pressure uh, with axial spondyloarthritis. That in part may be due to the use of anti-inflammatories, but also the condition itself. Mm. Um, I would say those are probably the main conditions that would be associated with axial spondyloarthritis. Or, or common, we should say, that, that yeah. are seen. Yeah. Okay. So if we move on to talking about how people are treated and what medications there are for the condition, can you give us a kind of an overview of, of all of that and how often they're taken and how? Yeah. So I, I think the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis is twofold, as I hinted earlier. The two main areas would be physiotherapy or physical therapy, mm-hmm. and the other side are medications. If we focus on the medications, the first group of drugs that's always used in this condition would be the anti-inflammatory drugs. And we've got a plethora of anti-inflammatories that are available. Probably commonly used these days would be ibuprofen or naproxen as first line. But if those don't work, we might move on to other drugs such as Arcoxia, uh, Celebrex, uh, or Meloxicam as examples. Right. Now, with all these anti-inflammatories, there's no one recommendation that fits everyone, but we make a case-by-case decision as to whether the patient with axial spondyloarthritis should be taking the anti-inflammatory every day on a regular basis or use it if they have a flare and use it regularly during the flare or use it ad hoc as they need it. It's an individual case-by-case decision. But I think it's fair to say with the anti-inflammatories and stretches on a regular basis, 
that works for the majority of arthritis patients at the outset. Okay. Now, if uh, patients don't respond to anti-inflammatories, and NICE guidelines would state that we have to have tried two anti-inflammatories at their full dose for at least four weeks. Mm-hmm. If people are still getting symptoms beyond that, then they would become eligible for the biological drugs. So the last 20 years has seen the sort of treatment paradigm of arthritis being transformed from a time where physiotherapy and anti-inflammatories were the main stay of treatment to these biological drugs making such a difference uh, for our patients. Um, Provided uh, the criteria met, patients can start biological therapies and we, as I say, see really nice responses. They don't work for everyone. Uh, Probably 70% of people get a response uh, from these drugs. The selection of which exact biologic is used can be complex, but will rely on what's seen on the x-ray or MRI and whether they present with some of the extra articular features that we talked about, so uveitis and psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disease, and a combination of different things in the clinical setting point us towards certain types of biologics. Now, at this stage, there are two main types of biologics in terms of the targets of these drugs, and they are the anti-TNF drugs, and examples of those would be adalimumab, etanercept, sertolizumab, golimumab, and infliximab. Mm-hmm. And the anti-IL-17 therapies, at this stage, we only have a drug called secikinimab, but there are two others called ixikizumab and bimikizumab, which are coming out in the near future. Mm, there's a lot of research, isn't there, going on in the background and lots of options open up as, as the years progress. Yeah, but those are the main biologic drugs that people would inject themselves with at this stage. Okay. I think, Mel, for me, the other two kind of things that uh, are important or things that I consider in clinical practice. Mm. One is we now know there are some what I call prognostic factors of perhaps those who may may not do as well with the condition. And these poor prognostic factors include being a male, which obviously you can't do very much about, smoking, people with high CRP inflammation levels, people whose x-rays at the outset showed changes consistent with ankylosing spondylitis, and people whose MRI scans show a lot of inflammation. So if those poor prognostic factors are present, I'm keen to think about moving on the treatments to biologic therapies, if appropriate, Mm. rather than later. So I think that's one key thing. The second point, of course, that comes out in that is that really the more I see in clinical practice of smoking and progression in AS, they are undoubtedly linked. So getting people to try and stop smoking, to try and modify that risk factor, I think is really key. Mm. So I wanted to ask you about um, what they can do themselves. We know they, they can exercise. And you've just said smoking is a, a big risk for them. So 
are there other things such as any kind of diet or any anything else they could be doing to help keep themselves in the best state possible yeah, I, I think following a healthy diet is absolutely key. Um, there's a lot of research, as you and I know, going into the gut microbiome and, and getting an understanding of how that plays a part in atherosclerotic arthritis. And I think there's some really key messages going to come out of that. But for me, in essence, I think using the medications to be as pain-free as you can be, which then enables you to do the right stretches and exercises on a regular basis is the key for successful outcome. Mm, absolutely. And I know having talked to um, Dale from NAS recently, there's NAS exercise groups and all sorts for people to be able to join in on to help keep them motivated and demonstrate exactly what they should be doing. So we've got that physio podcast as well. So all of those things are going to tie in nicely with with what you're saying here. Brilliant. And yeah, uh, without a doubt, the National Active Spondyloarthritis Society uh, provides some really super information for patients. Uh, and then NAS Back to Action app is a very good resource for uh, guidance on exercise. Excellent. Patients are always concerned about the possible side effects of some of these medications, especially the strong ones like biologics where they're self-injecting. What's your thoughts on that, Raj? Yeah, so uh, I think it's worth uh, talking about the side effects for all of the drugs we use really now. So with anti-inflammatories, particularly long-term use, um, one has to be slightly cautious of gastrointestinal side effects. Uh, so, so reflux and uh, stomach ulcers are possibilities there. Uh, again, very long-term use can be associated with, with kidney problems and, and high blood pressure. But I, I think whilst we need to be cautious about very long-term use, certainly shorter-term use is absolutely fine and, and the drugs are effective and, and worth using. With biologics, uh, w when we started using them 20 years ago, we were all terrified um, about potential side effects. But in fact, over the years, um, we've understood the drugs really well. And I think we're, we're really quite well placed to uh, ensure that we're putting the right people on drugs to prevent those side effects from happening. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, it, when we first started using biologics 20 years ago, we were seeing the odd case of TB. You know, now we're very good at screening people for TB. Uh, and I can't remember the last time we saw a case. Mm. Um, so reassuring. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I would say that the main potential side effects that we see would be a slightly high risk of infection. And I think that's probably the thing that I'd always be cautious about. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably the main one. There's a slightly higher increased incidence of skin cancers. So when people are out in the sun and on biologics, using factor 50 is some protection, I would say is very important. Mm -hmm. Been a minuscule uh, number of cases of multiple sclerosis, uh, but, but again, this is very, very rare. And beyond that, we haven't seen a huge number of problems. As I said, we now have had some people on biologic therapies for 20 years. Um, we are moving towards process also called dose optimization, where if patients are stable on their biologic therapies, we look to try and draw out the gap between injections. And, and that seems to be a useful process in keeping on top of symptoms, but 
preventing side effects from ensuring there isn't over-treatment per se. Mm, That's really interesting. Thank you. Again, when you see people in clinic, how are you seeing it's been affecting their lives? People struggling with work? And I think probably there's a bigger awareness now of the mental well-being of people who have been living with chronic pain conditions and worrying about their future and you know, having all kinds of anxieties and fears. Yeah, so we've always been interested in, in thinking about the sort of wider picture and the, the quality of life aspects. And we've published on a few a few of these uh, areas. Um, so I think coming to work first, I, I, I think noting the majority of people presenting, presenting their sort of 20s and 30s, you know, they're in the most formative years of their lives. They're starting out careers. And I must admit, if someone's coming to me and saying their condition is really so bad that they're struggling, concentrating at work, or they're having to take days off work because of their condition, you know, these are really important points. And and trying to help with the right medications, even moving on to biologics to ensure you get rid of the pain and stiffness so people can go to work is really key. We know from a number of studies that if patients stay in work, the control of their condition is likely to be much better. The second thing we know anxious spondyl arthritis really affects is sleep, and we've touched on it earlier. Mm. The waking in the second half of the night inevitably leads to high levels of fatigue, inability to concentrate at work. And so strategies to improve sleep are, are always talked about in our rehabilitation course, as an example. So work sleep, fatigue, these are all important things to our axial spondyl arthritis patients. Mm. You mentioned there as well the AS course that's run in Bath. I mean, it's a, a wonderful thing. It's not available everywhere in the country, though, is it? No, and, and for around 40 years, we've been lucky to have uh, physiotherapists lead on the two-week rehabilitation program, which is a combination of teaching patients the right stretches and exercises, both on land and in water, lots of education around the disease itself. And the networking between patients is so key for, for people living this condition because they'll say it's the first time they've met someone with a condition. Mm-hmm. And so as much as we as healthcare professionals try and empathize with our patients, the, the link they have with other patients uh, is really important. So we're obviously in, in COVID times struggling uh, to deliver the face-to-face two-week course but very excitingly, Mel, um, we started our first rehabilit- uh, virtual rehabilitation program. Fantastic. So delivering it virtually, um, our physiotherapists have done an amazing job uh, transforming what was a face-to-face service into a virtual one. And I'm really excited to see how that evolves and develops over time. And we're excited to hear because we, we helped a little bit with that as well in terms of evaluating it and yeah. doing a couple of workshops. So, yeah, we're, we're really pleased that that's something that's been developed. It's come out of a kind of a crisis situation, but actually might be really useful going forward. I really agree. You know, mm. I, my vision for the future would be when we can get back to the face-to-face courses, we do obviously still run those, but we'll always have a virtual program for people who either struggle to come from far away or even deliver it internationally for a group of patients who otherwise wouldn't have had access to something like this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So just to kind of start 
wrapping up a little bit. We've had a lot of your time. Thank you ever so much. I have to, to say, because I know you're taking time out of the clinic. Just some quick, uh, quick couple of things to cover. So, one of the things was just to say, is there something like a patient advice line for? patients to be able to call into between appointments and I know at the moment a lot of appointments are still virtual or telephone are they are they made aware of a nurse specialist that they can call or other HCPs yeah so we do have a patient advice line and um, this is mentioned to all our patients at appointments as well as in their clinic letters uh, we've also recently created a frequently asked questions on our patient website which we're hoping to improve as time goes on. And certainly our physiotherapists have recently added resource where they've produced stretching training videos that patients uh, will be able to access. And I think COVID's made us really evaluate the best ways of trying to provide care And this is something we're going to do in conjunction with patients in that the traditional model where you saw someone once every six months or a year may not have suited all because we were seeing some people when they were well. Mm. Some patients say, well, we'll actually like to see you when we're not so well. Mm -hmm. So reevaluating the service looking at how we might use the patient questionnaires like the BASDI that are filled in or self-management apps to help guide when we should see patients are things that we're actively pursuing at the moment. That all sounds really positive, I think. So that's good news. Thank you. So finally, if we could just wrap up, I mean, I'm guessing that it's very difficult to run any trials at the moment in the hospital, perhaps. Um, and have you learned anything new about what research is saying about AS this year that's that's really struck you as something new and different and exciting? Yeah, and it, it's been difficult because actually a, a number of the conferences haven't happened face-to-face and happened virtually, and a lot of the trials have been held as well. So there haven't been huge amounts of uh, research coming out, but the publications that have come out have reinforced some messages that we've known. For example, there was a paper recently that showed for patients who had x-rays followed up over around 18 years that TNF inhibitors did have an impact on the progression of the disease. So those are things that are good to know. We here uh, have done some research trying to find new markers for diagnosing axial spondyloarthritis, and there have been some preliminary findings, which Dr. Liz Riley, our PhD student, uh, has presented at international meetings. And the other piece of work, which I think is important, which was presented at our ULAR conference recently, was looking at structural changes on MRI scans that are helpful for diagnosing axial spondyloarthritis. And this has been a novel piece of work, which will be validated as uh, that happens. It'll enable better diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis moving forward. Brilliant. That's really good news. It's always really interesting and encouraging to hear about research and what's Mm. going on. And and obviously, we've got a a quite an active, engaged patient network. So they're always interested to hear where they can help. And that's something that we do on a regular basis, isn't it? Share backwards and forwards. Absolutely. It's very helpful. Yeah, Yeah, brilliant. So Raj, we've covered loads today, but I know there's loads more. And I know at every information day that we've run, 
you know, we could go on for days, really. There's so much information and you're, you're so engaged with this whole area. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. I'll let you get back to your busy clinic and I'll catch up with you again soon, Raj. Thanks, Mel. It was really nice talking to you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and just a reminder that you can sign up to hear about more podcasts and all the patient engagement research opportunities that are upcoming by joining our mailing list all you have to do is send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk the link is also in the text description of this podcast We would also like to thank Healthwatch Bath and North East Somerset for helping to fund this podcast. Time for a quick cuppa and a stretch. While you've got the kettle on, I'd like to just mention our new text and donate service that will help us to fund these podcasts. All you'd need to do is... Text BIRD to 70460 to donate £5. This costs £5 plus a standard rate message. Thanks for your support.